its history. The events. The figures. The drama. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. The deep and questions. That we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. It's no secret that here in the United States, Americans are living through the toughest economic times since the Great Depression. Traditionally, times like this breed reactions on the form of politicians who see a way to capitalize on the public displeasure with the current situation. So I want you to imagine a scenario for a minute, and I want to ask you what you think would happen if this scenario actually came to pass. I want you to imagine that here in the U.S. a politician begins to gain notoriety and rise up through the ranks and become popular with the American electorate on a radically populist agenda. And in order to make something like this feasible, this person would have to be a captivating speaker, someone who could rouse the public into action and anger and motivate them. Imagine for a moment that this person's plan was intended to deal with things like the wealth disparity here in the United States. Currently, we have one of the greatest wealth disparities in our history, one of the top three probably. And up until now, there's been very little attempts on the part of either major political party here in the United States to deal with that. Imagine that this person walks into that vacuum and has a plan. And the plan goes something like this. No person under this politician's plan, if he's elected, would be allowed to accumulate a personal net worth more than 300 times the average family fortune. So whatever the median income or the medium worth of an American family was, the richest person in the American civilization could only have 300 times that. The platform of this populist politician would limit personal assets to between $5 million and $8 million. And there would be a tax levied upon anything over that that would essentially make that a cap. This politician's platform would limit annual incomes to $1 million, and inheritances would be capped at $5 million. Every single family would be given a homestead allowance, an amount of money that goes to each home automatically. Make sure everyone's kept afloat. Make sure everyone has a minimum income no matter what their status. Education through college would be completely free, picked up by the taxpayers. And all of these reforms would be paid for by eliminating the super wealthy in American society. What do you think the reaction would be here in the United States if a person like this began to make significant progress towards those goals? The reason I ask is because such a man has already lived. And these goals were proposed as part of a platform during 
the worst times of the Great Depression here in the United States in the middle 1930s by a controversial American politician named Huey P. Long. Long had a program he called the Share Our Wealth Program. And I just enunciated several of the most important points. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was considered a radical by the American conservatives, considered Huey P. Long one of the two most dangerous men in America. And Long was making progress towards his goal of becoming president when he was cut down by an assassin's bullet in 1935. But even before he was killed, he'd had lots of death threats against him. A group was formed, the Square Deal Association, they were called, um, designed to create an insurrection in Louisiana to overturn Long and his policies. Matter of fact, this group was able to get 200 armed men to try to take over one of the Louisiana parishes at one point, and the governor had to call out the National Guard and declare martial law. All this because this politician was extremely dangerous to the American way of looking at things like wealth and the relationship between the classes in a society that never paid much attention to the idea of class at all. Now, Long is a particularly interesting figure because you can't just classify him as a radical do-gooder because the way Long operated in the state of Louisiana was almost dictatorial. You could almost say, if you wanted to be a believer in his good intentions, that he was willing to break laws in order to do good. If, on the other hand, you were less generous, you might say that this was a man who found a cause, populism, that would help him to gain personal power, and that that's what he was really after. Some of the people living during his time considered him to be a prototype for American fascism. But in the United States, our version of Hitler or Mussolini was going to come to power with an agenda to help the poor and the regular folks in the USA. The reason I bring up Huey Long is because he's the closest figure that comes instantly to my mind when we try to evaluate the way the figures in the Roman Republic, these figures that keep appearing every 10 or 15 years, like clockwork from 133 BC on, what they're like. It's hard to get your mind around what these continual reformers are all about. Are they champions of the poor? And are these people admirable? Or are they venal politicians seeking personal power who just find a great cause to get them that power. I mean, imagine for a second Mother Teresa, the famous Catholic nun who was renowned for helping the poor and those who were voiceless. What if Mother Teresa was only in it for the money? What if the famous nonviolent Indian activist... Mohandas Gandhi did what he did for fame and notoriety? What if Martin Luther King championed the cause of civil rights and the plight of African Americans 
for power? How much does the intentions of the people that we look at as sort of humanitarian reformers count in the grand scheme of things? I think we tend to think of these sorts of people in an idealistic sense, and in many cases that's probably the right way to look at them. But what if their intentions didn't seem to match up with their goals? What matters? The reason that they do these things or the results that they achieve by doing them? Would the fact that these people's motivation wasn't pure somehow taint the fact that their goals were laudable? That's what you're talking about when you get into this long line of Roman reformers. In 133 BC, it was Tiberius Gracchus, who was probably the most likely to be an idealistic, you know, real reformer, someone who was doing it because he really believed in the cause. Then 10 years later in 122 BC, you get his younger brother Caius Gracchus. You get Saturninus around the 100s. You get a guy named Marcus Livius Drusus in the 90s. And this just continues over and over and over again as these people arise to champion the cause of the various downtrodden groups in Rome. These people who are, in a sense, oppressed by the Senate and the conservative elements in Roman society, these elements that have become richer and richer and richer as Rome has become more and more powerful. But hard to evaluate these people, and you can tell by reading the primary sources that the Romans weren't sure about these people either, that they often thought that these people were not noble, but they were exploiting the masses, promising them all this stuff that sounded like justice in order to get what they wanted. At a certain point in Roman history, the politicians are promising things to the people and things to the powerful that they want to hear, and people are voting for their own self-interest. It's no longer about what's good for the country. We would call it patriotism. It's no longer about that. It's about what are you going to do for me, my class, and you know my situation individually. If you go back and read the primary sources... The Romans themselves are continually trying to figure out what's happening to them during their decline. And they, they look at things like we would look at things. They look at the morality of their people. You know, are we as good as we used to be? We in the United States would talk about the so-called greatest generation from the Second World War and say, well, you know what? We're a shadow of what those people were. The Romans did the same thing. They looked at their piety. They looked at their religion. And they wondered if the people were just less devout than they used to be. And maybe the gods were punishing them. Or maybe you lose the values that come with religion the way the Romans saw that. Some people have looked back on money as a cause. That the situation's one way when you're a nice, rustic, poor, up-and-coming country. It's a whole different situation when you're born into you know, wealth and abundant riches. In the earlier episodes of this program, we talked about ambition and how the Roman system was built on fostering and including all sorts of societal carrots and sticks designed to take an already competitive, ambitious people and make them more so, and how for a long time in Rome's history this paid huge dividends. It was like a giant king of the mountain game, as we said, 
and the people who managed to get to the top were incredibly gifted and incredibly talented because if they weren't, some other incredibly gifted, incredibly talented person would topple them. But the one thing you leave out in that mental image of a giant king-of-the-mountain game for leadership is that there's two sides to the game. There's offense and there's defense. Offense is seeing who gets to the top of the mountain first as though it's some race. Defense is seeing how much you can block or trip up or sabotage the progress of the other people trying to get to the top of the mountain. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy, an expert on Rome, says that one of the main reasons that Rome could not get reform passed in this crucial period where reform was so obviously necessary is that none of the senators and powerful people wanted to give their senatorial opposition a chance to gain huge amounts of credit for being the ones who solved Rome's problems. To the Roman politician, power was a zero-sum game, a finite pie, and if one politician was doing well, it was coming right out of your stock of power. If you helped another politician or supported another politician or voted for the program of another politician who was trying to solve one of Rome's problems, and they did so, that politician benefits from the fame and the renown and the reputation that comes from doing that. You don't. So you have no interest at all in helping them. Case in point, the latest of the Roman reformers in the 91 BCE era, a guy named Marcus Livius Drusus. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he had a father also named, confusingly enough, typical in the Roman system, Marcus Livius Drusus. The elder Marcus Livius Drusus was the tool that the Senate used to cynically undercut one of the earlier reformers, Caius Gracchus, in 122. Gracchus was promising all these things to the people, and the Senate realized that they were going to lose because the people were going to vote for their own interest. So they put forward their own guy, the elder Marcus Livius Drusus, and told him to just out-promise Caius Gracchus. They had no intention of ever fulfilling any of these promises, so just go out there. Anything he promises, promise double or triple, and when the election's over, we won't worry about it. So now the younger Marcus Livius Drusus is born and comes of age, and ironically enough, imitates the career of the man his father helped destroy. And this younger Marcus Livius Drusus is pushing for all sorts of things. He's pushing for lender and debt reform. He's pushing for reform of the courts. And most importantly, he's pushing for one of these ideas that's very important. You can tell because it keeps coming up over and over in Roman society. But one of these ideas that got Caius Gracchus killed. He's pushing for Rome's Italian allies, these people who share Rome's empire in terms of the burdens, but don't share in terms of the rewards, the Italian allies, he's pushing to get them citizenship. Roman expert Adrian Goldsworthy says that this whole period is really about solving a single question, and that question is, who gets to share in the spoils of empire? Because remember, in a very short period of time, Rome had gone from a regional power to basically the conqueror of the known world. That conquest obviously paid huge financial dividends. And those financial dividends were going to the same upper classes that had benefited traditionally in Rome. But now there was so much more money. And the money that was flowing into the coffers of these powerful people 
was allowing them to become more powerful. The growth, for example, of these giant landed estates where the individual plots and farms of small farmers were being gobbled up because there was money to gobble them up. And then the land was being worked by slaves because these people who were gaining even more money had money for slaves. So the disparity between the wealth of the top classes in Rome and the lower classes in Rome was getting wider than it had ever been before, opening up the door to these politicians to exploit that. You see a, an issue, and you become like a Huey Long. Do you become like a Huey Long because you see an injustice and your sense of right and wrong pushes you to correct it? Or do you become a Huey Long because you desire power and you see this as a way to get it? This becomes the central theme of this whole period in history, as far as the Romans are concerned. In 91 BCE, it's the turn, as we said, of Marcus Livius Drusus, the younger, to try his hand at playing the role of reformer. This Drusus, like his father, was a tribune of the plebs, this position that has changed the whole Roman system. This has been the wild card that some people actually blame on all the problems, because before Tiberius Gracchus in 133 BCE, the Senate pretty much controlled things the way that they wanted it controlled. The people are supposed to rule Rome, and they vote in a citizen's assembly. But before Tiberius Gracchus, that assembly had pretty much been controlled by the Senate. There was gerrymandering and all sorts of little tricks to get the electorate to vote the way you want them to or to nullify votes you didn't like. When Tiberius Gracchus in 133 BC does what he's not supposed to do, according to tradition, and takes laws directly to the people instead of going through the Senate, all of a sudden he opens up this new door in Roman politics and the senators are getting stuff passed that they don't like. And when they didn't like it when Tiberius Gracchus did it, they just killed him. When they didn't like it when his little brother, who also became a tribune of the plebs and also had no problem violating precedent and using their position to go directly to the people, they killed him too. Saturninus got stoned for his trouble by the Roman citizen population when they didn't like something he was going to do with the Italian allies. Now it's the turn of Marcus Livius Drusus the Younger. And by this time, he's under no illusions. He knows how dangerous it is to be playing the role of reformer in Rome. He can see what happened to the guys before him. And so instead of doing the normal thing when you're campaigning for programs and to get laws passed and stuff in Rome, normally you would go out into the open air of the forum and make your case and scream and yell and get a whole bunch of people listening to you. Drusus never leaves his house, stays at home with his supporters around him as a way to protect himself. And it's still hard to figure out what the motivations of Drusus were just like it's hard to figure out what the motivations of Long were. It's tempting for we people in Western democracies to ascribe the high-minded virtues to a guy like Drusus, that he was out there to correct injustices and that he had only the most noble of intentions. But if you could bring back a Roman from this time period in a time machine, they would almost certainly encourage us to be a little bit more cynical in the way we viewed these situations, because even though the ideals pushed forward by Drusus involved justice for people who deserved it, Drusus stood to gain a lot if he was able to achieve that goal. You see, the ancient historians say that all these Italian allies who were so desperate for citizenship had promised Drusus that if he could get that for them, that they would become his clients. 
And in the Roman system, as we said earlier, the clients owed favors to the patrons, a little like the Marlon Brando Godfather character saying that someday I might ask you for a favor, and that day may never come. In the Roman system, that day always came, and it was called Election Day. These Italian allies, who if they were made citizens, would actually outnumber the Roman citizens if they had really pledged their support for Marcus Livius Drusus, would have voted for him, which would have made Drusus the most powerful man in Rome. What if Martin Luther King pushed his reform agenda in order to gain power? And as the vote comes closer and closer and the day is approaching, um, you know, you can sense through the records and the sources that the tensions are mounting. And then one day, the Roman historian Appian says, while Drusus is giving a speech in what is described as the dimly lit portico of his home, surrounded by supporters, he all of a sudden screams out that he's been stabbed. And Appian says, dies with those words still on his lips, a leather worker's knife driven deeply into his hip. And remember, the Romans have a long-running tradition of death to tyrants, going all the way back to when they drove the last king out of Rome. There was always some Roman who was willing to step up and end the life of somebody who threatened to become the tyrant or the king. It's possible the Roman who came back in the time machine to explain to us what Drusus was really about would suggest that when he died, some noble Roman had killed him as a way to prevent one man from gaining control over all the others. Now you have Drusus following in the footsteps of these reformers who came before him, and looking a lot like Huey Long, who was assassinated by gunshot in 1935. Maybe not even by gunshot. It's a little controversial there, too. And I often hear Americans wonder why the Romans were so quick to go to violence when the political winds didn't blow their way. And I always say, well, don't ignore how many of these reformers have been killed. How long do you think Americans would put up with reformer after reformer after reformer being killed by the same side, or at least the side that would benefit? No one knows who killed Drusus. But what you do know is because he died, his law never got passed. Who benefited from that? And... When he died, the Romans, in typical, almost blind fashion, go about their politics as usual, you know, approach to things. They go back to the Senate, and they hold what historian Michael Crawford calls a political witch hunt, going after their senatorial brethren and trying to get, you know, an advantage over their political opponents, using this whole Marcus Livius Drusus assassination and his attempt to get citizenship for the Roman allies Here's the way the Roman historian Appian describes the situation and also what happened next. And when he talks about the equestrians, just so you know, he's talking about the business class of Rome. Here's what he says, quote, Thus Drusus, too, was killed during his tribunate. The equestrians seized on his political activity as a springboard from which to bring accusations against their opponents and persuaded the tribune, Quintus Varius, to set up a judicial proceeding against those persons assisting the Italians, openly or secretly, against the common weal. They hoped to bring all the powerful men into court immediately on a highly prejudicial charge and themselves to sit in judgment on them and once these men were out of the way to exert a still more powerful grip on Rome. When the rest of the tribunes vetoed the proposal of the law, the equestrians formed a guard with swords in their hands and secured its passage. And when it was passed, their names at once appeared as accusers of the most prominent of the senators. 
Bestia did not even obey the summons, but went into exile on his own accord to avoid surrendering himself into the hands of his enemies. Kata came into court to answer the charge, but after making a proud defense of his political actions and openly abusing the equestrians, also left the city before the jury voted. Mummius Achaeus was disgracefully trapped by the equestrians, who promised to acquit him and was sentenced to exile and spent the rest of his life on the island of Delos. As this malice toward the aristocracy intensified, the ordinary people became distressed that so many men of such standing and achievement kept on being taken from them. And the Italians, learning of Drusus's fate and of the excuse for sending these men into exile, considered it intolerable for those who were politically active on their behalf to be treated in this way any longer, and as they saw no other method of realizing their hopes of gaining Roman citizenship, decided to secede from the Romans forthwith and make war on them to the best of their ability. They negotiated secretly amongst themselves to form a league for these purposes, and exchanged hostages as guarantees of good faith. For some time, the Romans were unaware of these developments because of the judicial proceedings and factional strife in Rome. But when they found out, they sent the most suitable of their own people out to each of the towns to discover unobtrusively what was going on. One of these men saw a youth being taken as hostage from the town of Asculum to another town, and informed Servilius, the proconsul of the region. Servilius hurried, somewhat hot-headedly, to Asculum, issued dire threats to the people of the town, who were celebrating a festival, and was killed by them in the belief that their plans had already been detected. In addition, they put to death Fontius, his legatus. Once these two had been killed, none of the other Romans was spared. The Asculans assaulted them, stabbed everyone to death, and looted their property. End quote. What Appian is saying is that the witch hunt that went on in the Roman Senate was to purge any of these senators who were supporting the same ideas that Drusus was. Because in typically confusing Roman fashion, it would be nice to be able to say that the aristocracy supported one side and the common people were supported the other. It wasn't that way. There were people all mixed up. There were powerful aristocratic senators who saw the wisdom in giving citizenship to the Italian allies, and there were others who didn't. And the equestrian, the business class, seemed to be the most you know, diametrically opposed to the idea. The problem was is that the people who were pushing for citizenship for the Italian allies had put their finger on a real problem. They could tell that the Italian allies were near the edge and that unlike the other times that reformers had been killed in Rome, this wasn't just going to go away this time. Marcus Livius Drusus's assassination became the final straw in terms of the Italian allies, and their ability to put up with this any longer. They had been waiting for generations for what they considered to be their due, working within the system the right way, only to get thwarted again. And not only did the Roman Senate not seem to be very sympathetic after Drusus died, they went about their merry way just doing their little political games while the Italian allies had decided they'd had enough. And they started a conspiracy, as Appian says, exchange hostages, which is the ancient world's version of solidifying a contractual obligation, to make sure someone sticks to their part of the deal, you send your powerful people or the children or the relatives of your powerful people to the other city and say, if we break our part of the bargain, you can do whatever you want to these hostages. And then when the Romans figure out something's going on and they send some investigators to this town in Asculum, the investigators are killed so they can't go back to Rome and tell the Romans what's going on. And the Asculans just let all caution fly to the wind, kill all the Romans within their midst, and the war is on. A war that will eventually take the lives of 300,000 Romans and Italians. It's become known to history by several names. The most popular are the War of the Allies or the Social War. It breaks out in 91 BCE. 
And what ends up happening is the Italians decide to form their own state. They've had it. And they get their own capital in a city called Corfinium. They copy the Roman constitution, essentially, because remember, these are people who are admirers of Rome. They didn't want to leave. But if they're not going to be included, they're going to set up their own state. So they form this state based on the same constitution. They elect consuls and senators from all these different Italian regions. They mint coinage, which is a little like a middle finger being thrown Rome's way. When you see what they put on the coins, one of the most popular designs shows the Italian bull, one of the traditional symbols of Italy, goring the Roman wolf. Now, think about how difficult a conflict this is going to be for Rome, because it does a number of things. The first thing it does is totally screw up the Roman foreign policy agenda. Normally, when Rome's talking about defending Italy, the goal is to not let the enemy in Italy. Just like Hannibal more than 100 years before, he comes down into Italy, he destroys the countryside for years, he turns all these rebellious Italian cities against Rome, so the policy had been for a long time, just don't let the enemy in Italy. When the German tribes, the Teutons and the Kimbri are coming down from the north, the whole strategy is, you know, blockade the Alps, don't let them into Italy. Well, the day the war with the Allies breaks out, the enemy is in Italy, because they are Italy. And Rome is surrounded by hostile Italian cities overnight. The other problem Rome faces is that in any war Rome was going to get into during this period, at least half the manpower they were going to rely on for the legions was going to come from these same Italian allies they were now fighting. And finally, you know, the Romans had a bunch of advantages over enemies that they faced. You know, from generals to tactics to organization to weapons to the individual toughness of their soldiers. They had none of these advantages over the Italians because the Italians were fighting in the Roman legions as Romans. And when they fought, you know, for the Italian allies against the Romans, they fought the same way. They knew all the tactics, they knew the generals, they knew the weapons and armor because they used them themselves, and they had their own legionaries. This war would rage for several years and was ruinous to Italy. And yet, that's not the part that it's important to know about this the most for. The reason the war with the Allies is important to history, because it, it's over in a few years. So in that sense, it's not so important. It's so important because what it showed to the rest of the known world, the Mediterranean world, the world that was under Rome's thumb, is that all of a sudden, the lone world superpower was vulnerable, and vulnerable in a way it hadn't been in you know, a couple of lifetimes. This is a country that had no more natural enemies because they defeated them all. And the last time that they'd fought big wars against big empires, you know, not these German tribes and not these guerrilla wars in North Africa, the last time Rome was beating up big empires with kings and civilized armies and the whole thing, they were doing it with like one hand tied behind their back. They were suffering a fraction of the casualties and wiping out whole armies. They were doing it easily. Now all of a sudden, the superpower looked vulnerable and there were a lot of people living under the Roman thumb that saw an opportunity to escape. The first opportunity, maybe the only opportunity in a very long time. So while Rome appears to be breaking up internally, a particular king in a small, out-of-the-way kingdom called Pontus, which was located on the shores of the Black Sea in what's now Turkey, a guy named Mithridates VI, maybe the most interesting non-Roman individual in this whole story, decides the time is right to live up to what his birthright is. This is a guy who's portrayed in all the sources 
as a person who lived his life in preparation for taking down Rome. And what better time to do this than when it appears that Rome is occupied trying to keep from falling apart. Mithridates is sort of a person you could look at as Alexander the Great's dream come true. Because when Alexander the Great, the great Macedonian wunder king from a couple hundred years before, when he destroys the Achaemenid Persian Empire, this empire that had been in control of all of Asia for a long time, he decides that instead of ruling over them as a conquered people, the historians from the period say, he wanted to fuse the Westerners and the Easterners together into one sort of hybrid people. And he would hold these very high-profile mass marriage ceremonies between Macedonian generals and officers and have them marry Persian noble women together in the hopes that then you would create a new generation of mixed blood that would then run this unified empire. Well, for the most part, that failed for a lot of reasons. But Mithridates VI was sort of the living embodiment of that Alexandrian dream because he himself was of the mixed you know, Persian and Macedonian Greek heritage. And he would use this all through his reign because when he was conducting diplomacy with Easterners living in the old Persian Empire or the remains of it, he would always highlight his ethnic heritage and his connection to the great kings of the Achaemenids, people like Darius and Xerxes, the people who fought the Greeks at Thermopylae and the Spartans and all that. And when he was dealing with the West and the Greeks, he would highlight his Greek heritage. And not just that, his connection to Alexander the Great, he's even supposed to have had some of Alexander's stuff, you know, hundreds of year old relics, one that they specifically mentioned is Alexander's personal cloak. And he'd go riding around in this sometimes and portray himself as the great liberator of the Greeks, which is kind of a joke because the Greeks really hated Alexander during his lifetime, but they didn't realize what they were going to get later, which was the Romans, which looked a lot worse to them. All of a sudden, Alexander the Great or this reincarnation of his spirit in the form of Mithridates VI becomes a little like King Arthur to them. Maybe he's the guy who's going to ride in on the white horse and liberate them. You know, a Greekish guy coming to liberate Greece from the Roman tyranny. And Mithridates understood this, which is why he portrayed himself that way. There was a lot of propaganda involved in what Mithridates was doing because Mithridates understood something innately. He was the king of a rich but tiny kingdom. They were not going to be able to overthrow Rome. What they could do was spark a revolution and get all of these people that Rome was holding down to overthrow Rome together. Now, Mithridates' personal history is fascinating. There's a new book about him called The Poison King because this is a guy who's fascinated, we're told, and always had a reputation in the ancient world as being fascinated with poison. Not so hard to understand, by the way, if you understand that both the Macedonian heritage on one side of his family and the Achaemenid heritage on the other side of the family had a ton of rulers that were poisoned to death. So if you were going to be a ruler from that tradition, you might very well try to make yourself poison-proof, which is exactly what we're told Mithridates tried to do. He's supposed to have taken small amounts of all different kinds of poisons from the time he was a kid hoping to develop some sort of a resistance to them. He was also supposed to continually dose himself with antidotes, hoping to build up some of that in his blood. So fascinated with poison. Supposed to have kept a hollow ring on his finger at all times with a bit of a very particularly special poison in it, just in case. And the story is that Mithridates is born to a mother who tries to kill him. 
So he flees at a very early age to the countryside to avoid his murderous mother and lives an almost Tarzan-like existence, the sources say. He's killing animals with his bare hands. He's super strong, you know, the sources make him out to be. And they say he can speak 22 languages. And he's just this fascinating character. Well, when he becomes old enough, we're told he, he gets an army together out in the hinterlands, marches on his capital, or the one that should be his capital, deposes and kills his mother, kills a brother, marries his sister, which seems like a good idea at the time until he finds out, we're told, that his sister was trying to kill him, almost certainly using poison. So he kills her, it's said, by poison, and now he's in charge of this area. He's even supposed to have had a run-in with the great six-time consul and Roman leader Caius Marius early on in his kingship, where Marius sort of treats him like a scolding parent and tells him he better behave and says something to the effect of, listen, unless you can make your tiny little kingdom as powerful as Rome, you would be well off to do what Rome tells you to do. Well, doesn't seem to be the course Mithridates is actually setting. And we're told by the sources that he learns about the way the people in the Roman East, which is what's now Turkey and Greece, what they're feeling by going and walking amongst the people in disguise, undercover. You know, not as the king, but as this regular traveler and wanderer and listening to how upset people are with Rome. And people are violently angry with Rome. Not only are they being oppressed by the taxes that the publicani and the Roman tax farmers and the businessmen are putting on all these people. But when they can't pay, the Romans are selling them into slavery and they're exploiting everything. And I mean, it's just, it's awful. And the people are ready to explode, but they don't have the military means to do this, even though Rome's only got a couple of little legions guarding this whole area. And that's another thing Mithridates is supposed to figure out while he's in disguise traveling. And so what ends up happening is when Mithridates is on the throne, he's watching what's going on in Italy as the social war begins to tear Rome apart. And you know he's got to be thinking, when am I ever going to see a better opportunity to get my plan of creating an anti-Roman revolution going than now? They're busy. They may not even survive this. And so a border war breaks out between Mithridates and a bunch of little puppet states that border Pontus. And these are Roman puppet states. And no one to this day knows who started it all. The Romans may have had a guy named Manius Aquilius who may have fostered this whole thing. And there's a conspiracy theory, by the way, that Manius Aquilius was a client of the great Gaius Marius and that this whole thing was part of a plan to stir up a war so that the Romans would have to turn to that discredited old man who's living off, you know, on his wealthy estate brooding about that seventh consulship the seers and prophesizers told him he was going to get but that he hasn't had yet. And he's getting pretty old. Um, but no one knows if Manius Aquilius actually did that or not. What is known is that as soon as the war breaks out, instead of it being a long slogging match, Mithridates rolls over these client kingdoms and then continues to just go forward. He doesn't stop at the kingdom of the people he was fighting with. He goes into the Roman East and rolls over the small little amount of Romans that were there defending it and very quickly finds himself on the shores of the Aegean Sea with a chance to cross into Greece very quickly. It's a shocking state of affairs, probably even shocking for Mithridates. Who would have thought that this king of a tiny little kingdom in the middle of, you know, the backwaters of the Roman hinterlands in the east would do this or could do this? And Mithridates starts putting his plan into action once this military 
you know, this unexpected military victory happens by telling all of the people in the East where he is to rise up against the Roman oppressors. And he does this in a way that I've never found anything equal to this ever. Now, there may be stuff out there. I haven't found it. You know, I'm just a fan of history, so maybe I don't know. But try to find an occurrence that is like what Mithridates did when he issued a secret execution order to all these cities in the Roman East at the same time. And he told all these people that at this night, on this date, you are to rise up and kill all the Romans around you. Author Tom Holland writes about, you know, the reaction of the Greeks to the coming of Mithridates, you know, this killer of his own mother, this man that normally the Greeks would not have looked at as anything other than a barbarian, but they were desperate. Here's what Tom Holland writes, quote, As a matricidal barbarian, he was hardly the kind of champion the Greeks would normally have taken to their hearts. But better a matricidal barbarian than the publicani. The longing for freedom was so desperate, and the loathing of Rome so visceral, that the provincials were willing to go to any lengths to dispose of their oppressors. In the summer of 88 BCE, when Rome's chains had already been thrown off by Mithridates' offensive, by the way, they were to demonstrate this in a horrific explosion of violence. Aiming to bind the Greek cities to him irrevocably, Mithridates wrote to them, ordering the massacre of every Roman and Italian left in Asia. The Greeks followed his instructions with savage relish. The atrocity was all the more terrible for the secrecy with which it had been prepared and the perfect coordination of the attacks. Victims were rounded up and slaughtered by hired assassins, hacked to pieces as they clung to sacred statues or shot as they attempted to escape into the sea. Their bodies were left to rot unburied outside city walls. 80,000 men, women, and children were said to have been killed on that single deadly night. End quote. Now, what this does is it forces all those peoples onto Mithridates' side and assures that they're not going to switch sides because now the Romans aren't going to forgive them anyway. They've cast their murderous lot with Mithridates. It's like a blood pact. And he then goes on and pushes the propaganda, the part that's going to get him the support he needs. He's just a tiny little kingdom. How's he going to overthrow Rome? By inflaming all the anti-Roman tension everywhere. What's he got to do to do that? He's got to portray himself as the liberator, as the long-sought-after, prophesized avenger from the East. And there are prophecies predicting this, and Mithridates has people add to them, and he makes it sure that it looks like it, you know, it fits him perfectly. And he even captures that guy, Manius Aquilius, who's supposed to have had a role in starting this war so that Rome could, you know, get even more territory and more money. And here's how Tom Holland describes how Mithridates uses all this for propaganda purposes. Quote, as a blow to the Roman economy, this was calculated and devastating. But as a blow to Roman prestige, it was far worse. Mithridates had already shown himself a master of propaganda, resurrecting these Sibyls' prophecies and throwing in some new ones of his own in order to make them appear more relevant to himself. The common theme was the appearance of a great king from the East, an instrument of divine retribution sent to humble the arrogant and grasping superpower. The mass slaughter of businessmen was only one way in which Mithridates chose to dramatize this. Even more calculated for effect was the execution of Manius Aquilius, the Roman commissioner who had provoked Mithridates into war in the first place. Falling ill at just the wrong moment, Holland writes, the unfortunate Aquilius was captured and dragged back to Pergamum, shackled all the way to a seven-foot barbarian. 
After tying him to an ass and parading him through jeering crowds, Mithridates next ordered some treasure melted down. When all had been prepared, Aquilius's head was jerked back, his mouth forced open, and the molten metal poured down his throat. He has Mithridates then saying these words, quote, Warmongers against every nation, people, and king under the sun, the Romans have only one abiding motive, greed, deep-seated for empire, and riches. And then Holland continues, quote, This had been the verdict of Mithridates on the Republic, and now, in the person of her legate in Asia, he exacted symbolic justice. Manius Aquilius choked to death on gold. End quote. So, Manius Aquilius drowns on gold, and that's a symbol, a symbol for all of Rome's, you know, downtrodden subjects that aren't Roman that they could relate to because for them that would be karmic payback, the Romans drowning on, the greedy Romans drowning on gold. Now, what this does is force the Romans to finish up the social war fast. They haven't the luxury of doing wars with their allies the way they normally do. The Romans are extremely severe as a people. They're one of these peoples that don't go in for half measures or compromises. When they fight you, they require you know, unconditional surrender, and the terms are always harsh. And for once, the Romans are not in a position to do that. So they go to their Italian allies, and they try something that is very un-Roman in terms of a tactic to help end a war. The Romans offer concessions to these Italian allies. The first ones are offered to cities that are actually still loyal to Rome, but appear to be wavering, and maybe they're going to join the Italian cause. So the Romans turn to them and say, don't join the Italian cause, and if you don't, we'll let you be citizens. Think of how that must have gone over. This is what these cities have always wanted. They never wanted to leave Rome. They just wanted to be citizens, and now the Romans were offering it to them, and they said... Well, yeah, sure, we're not going anywhere, we'll stay here. And once the Romans saw how well that was working out, they then went to a bunch of cities that appeared to be wavering from the cause of the Italian allies. Maybe they were going to come back to Rome, their cities were being besieged by Roman generals, the war was expensive and tough, and the Romans went to them and said, listen, you come over to our side and we'll make you Roman citizens. And that worked out really well too. So finally the Romans said, listen, to any one of you Italian allied cities who lay down your arms, we'll make you all Roman citizens. Now, of course, you're probably thinking what I'm thinking, which is if the Romans had just done this initially, none of these wars would have ever happened. 300,000 Romans and allies wouldn't have had to die. Italy wouldn't have had to have been, you know, burned and raped and all of the problems wouldn't have had to happen. And Mithridates maybe never would have launched his war, but that wasn't the way the Romans thought. The war against the allies was a loss, loss, loss all the way around. No one gained from that except Mithridates and, oh yeah, a couple of Romans. The Romans who gained from the war with the Allies were a couple of the generals who fought on the Roman side. Because remember, in Rome, the generals are the politicians. They're the same people. And the tradition was for a general to do really well and then go to Rome and run for high office and capitalize on how well they did. Say, look how well I did in the war. Wouldn't you like me to be the consul? After all, once I'm the consul, the first thing you're probably going to have me do is lead a legion somewhere. And the guy who had done the best as a Roman general in the war with the Allies was our old friend Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Remember, this is the guy who was a low-level junior officer in North Africa against Jugurtha and actually succeeded in bringing Jugurtha in 
He's also the guy who performed so well as a sub-commander against the Kimbri and the Teutons. Now he was in a position to show, you know, how competent and how well he could perform in a really pressure situation. And he was the perfect guy to choose because Lucius Cornelius Sulla was a defender of the old guard, of the old Roman virtues. If anyone was a perfect guy to be commanding Roman soldiers against these Italian allies who were trying to, in the old guard's mind, unconstitutionally change the system, it was Sulla. Because Sulla comes from one of the really old, distinguished Roman families. Think about someone who was born into the Bush family or the Kennedy family, one of these rich, old-line families that are the bulwarks of the constitutional system and have been playing a role in it for generations. The tragedy, though, of Sulla, at least in the eyes of a lot of the ancient historians, was that here's a guy born in a family where everybody's born with silver spoons in their mouths, but because of a little twist of fate... Sulla's father having died at a young age and the family being in debt, Sulla was born into one of these blue-blood families without the money to back it up. They almost act like, when you read the historians, that it would have been better to have been born a lower-class person with no expectations than to have been born someone with such a noble and blue-blood name and no money. And we're told that when Sulla is a young man, he has a sort of a wasted youth. And yet in typical... Sulla fashion, he would even benefit from, you know, going against the grain this way. Here's a guy who hangs out with all the wrong people while growing up, the kind of people that any sort of typical Roman moralist would have said, well, you're going to end up you know, in a bad way for hanging out with this kind of crowd, and manages to profit from it anyway. Sulla manages to capture the attention of one of the highest paid prostitutes in Rome who falls head over heels for him to such a degree that when she dies, she leaves her fortune, because she's such a high-paid prostitute, to Sulla. That, along with another inheritance he got from his stepmother, he's able to convert into, you know, typical Roman political advantage, that being an obviously gifted commander in all these earlier wars. And by the time of the social wars, Sulla is poised to benefit in typical you know, Roman general fashion from the conflict. And he becomes one of only two generals who does well in the war. And he's, he's an interesting guy personality-wise, too. You look at a statue of Sulla, and he's a handsome man. Has his hair in almost like a playboy sort of style, and we're told that his hair was a golden color, almost red. That he had piercing blue eyes that left an impression on anyone who ever saw them. The only thing that marred Sulla's physical features, and everyone who wrote about him in the ancient world talked about it, was his complexion. He had these red or purple blotches on his face, and we're told that when he would become angry, they would get darker, and white spots would appear around them. An ancient writer said that it was like mulberry sprinkled with flour, and he was both absurdly cruel at times and had this ferocious ability to be wicked, which is the only way we could describe it. And yet at the same time, we're also told he had this sense of humor and a sense of comedy that would come out at strange times, too. He's a fascinating figure, very controversial. If you read the ancient writers, they have a hard time getting their mind around this guy, too. He was a contradiction in a lot of ways. And yet in this civil war between the Romans and their allies, he's the most dependable general the Romans have, winning battle after battle and really solidifying his ability to capitalize on all this politically. There's only one other Roman general that the Romans can count on, you know, to be consistently victorious. 
and it's somebody who also benefited greatly from this war with the Allies, because otherwise there would have been no reason to ever hear from this guy again. It's Gaius Marius. The old man who had been retired in disgrace after backing Saturninus, you know, a decade previously. That was a guy who was probably going to rot in retirement, except that this social war created a need on the Romans to go grab any general they could find. They needed every good general they had, and like him or hate him, fear him or worry about him, Caius Marius was one of the most brilliant generals in Roman history. And so in their time of need, they opened up an opportunity for Marius to come back too. And he and Sulla are the ones who benefit the most from a war against their own people. Sulla benefits from it so much, though, because in 88 BCE, where he's besieging a city called Nola, which is one of the last holdouts in the social war. There are some people, by the way, in the social war that won't surrender for years. The Romans' most bitter Italian enemies forever were the Samnite people, a people that the Romans just scorned and hated and were shocked and scandalized by. A um, hill people made it very difficult for the Romans to get to. And these people, um, you know, the Romans always considered them sort of boorish peasants who wore iron rings around their neck and scandalously both sexes would allow barbers to shave their pubic hair in public. Just the sort of activity that would be, you know, designed to upset Roman morals. The Romans would let you do almost anything in private, but don't be caught doing it in public. So the Samnites will fight on for a long time. But So Nola, though, is being besieged by... Sulla, as this war is winding down, and Sulla thinks, hey, great opportunity to go to Rome, run for the consulship. You know, he's the guy who brought Jugurtha in and ended the guerrilla war in North Africa, making a big name for himself while he was still a junior officer. And he performed so well in the wars against the Cimbri and the Teutones a decade or so before, and now he thinks with his conquest in the social war, he's well-known enough, and he's got enough accomplishments under his belt that the Romans will vote him consul. He goes to Rome in 88 BC, runs for consul, and is elected. But while Sulla is in Rome running for the election and being elected consul, once again, violence breaks out in the city. And it's interesting because if you look at the way some of the Roman historians write about the political violence in Rome amongst the various political factions in Rome, it always seems to come at a time when things are pretty safe. When when major wars are happening, the Romans band together and forget their differences. But once wars are solved and finished, like this social war winding down, that opens the door to the Romans fighting amongst themselves. And when Sulla returns to Rome to run for election, once again, another radical reformer in the mold of all these other guys has arisen. In the mold of the Gracchus brothers and Saturninus and Marcus Livius Drusus, and now the guy's name is Sulpicius. And Sulpicius is pushing a cause, as they all are. This one is a good one from a justice standpoint. He's pushing the cause of the Italian allies. And you say, well, why would he be pushing that? Didn't the Italian allies just get citizenship, which they'd always wanted? Yes, but in typical Roman fashion, the Romans couldn't just give them citizenship. They had to cheat them. And they cheated them in the fine print. The Roman system was intricate. The Roman political system had all these little loopholes and, you know, we would call a lot of what they did gerrymandering today and little ways to tweak the system and disempower certain peoples. That's what they did to the Roman allies. They assured that the Roman allies would be included in voting bodies that almost never influenced the vote. And you know it must have been arcane and hard to figure out because the Roman allies were not fools. And yet they laid down their weapons 
stopped a war that they'd already lost lots of people in based on the promise that they were finally going to be citizens. And then once they lay down the weapons, they get to find out that the fine print makes them citizens, but you're never going to really impact the vote. So this guy named Sulpicius arises. He's another tribune of the plebs, and he's pushing a number of things, debt relief, you know, all the typical populares agenda. But the main issue is justice for the Italian allies. Now, like all the other reformers before him, Sulpicius is learning from the mistakes of the ones who came before him, and he's determined not to be assassinated, and he's determined not to be lynched. So he's got an armed bodyguard around him now. Remember, Saturninus had some thugs. That wasn't enough to prevent disaster. So Sulpicius has an armed bodyguard of freed slaves and gladiators, some 600 of them armed. He calls them his anti-Senate. So there's the Senate, which tends to lynch people like him, and he has his armed anti-Senate to prevent them from doing that. As a matter of fact, we're told at some point in all these proceedings, some of the senators do try to lynch Sulpicius, and Sulpicius's anti-Senate prevents that from happening. Now, as Sulpicius is pushing his agenda, he's running into problems. One is, he spent a ton of money trying to get people to support him, and he's in terrible debt. The second thing is, is he needs help from somebody with more gravitas and more dignity and more power and more, you know, weight behind him. Who can he turn to? Well, we're told he turns to the old man himself, the great Caius Marius, for help. Now, Marius, of course, has a history of this. The reason he was discredited and sent off to his wealthy villa the last time was because he backed one of these radical reformers, and now he comes out of retirement to back another one. He offers to pay off Sulpicius's debt. He works with him. He just has something that he wants out of the deal. He wants what Sulla just got. Not the consulship. He's fine with Sulla being the consul right now. Marius wants what the consul's going to get, though. The consul's traditionally who gets to fight the wars. What's the war about to happen? The war against Mithridates. What is it Sulla wants? The war against Mithridates. Why? Because it's perceived to be an easy war with huge, huge benefits. The one thing about the Roman East is that's the rich part of the Roman conquest. The East is always associated with wealth, and Pontus, which is a place that's unconquered, is supposed to be wealthier still. The tales that circulate from the Roman sources talk about for example, Mithridates' army. And they say that Mithridates' soldiers' weapons are all inlaid with pure gold, and that the armor that the troops wear has precious gemstones sewn into them. I mean, it must have looked fabulous on parade, if that's all true, but you can see how the Romans are looking at this and their mouths are watering. Rome is in a tough economic time right now. The social wars have caused economic upheavals. The, um, The changes in the wealth, where the wealthy were becoming richer and the poor becoming poorer, have been a problem for quite some time. And Mithridates' offensive in the East has destroyed land rates and equity, and, you know, it's just, the economic times are terrible. So what's the best thing that could happen? Well, going back and getting a chance to re-rape and re-plunder the whole Roman East as you reconquer it, and then as a cherry on top of that cake, take Pontus too. Every ambitious powerful Roman wants that job. And the only guy who's gotten that job by playing fair and square with the rules is Sulla, running for office, getting the job, and now he's going to lead the conquest into the east. He goes off back to his army, 
you know, still besieging Nola, tells them, get ready, boys, we're going to go conquer Mithridates. The army's pleased as heck because they all think they're going to gain a lot, too. Everybody involved in this venture is going to come out a rich man. And all of a sudden, two riders are seen approaching over the horizon toward the siege works at Nola in 88 BCE. They dismount, and they tell Sulla that he's got to turn over his army. He's got to be confused. And he says, why? And they say, because the People's Assembly has voted to give the army and the command of the whole war against Mithridates to somebody else. They're giving it to Marius. And this must have been shocking. Here's how Appian describes this whole state of affairs. Quote, When Mithridates, king of Pontus and of certain other peoples, invaded Bithynia and Phrygia and the parts of Asia which adjoins them, as I have described in the preceding volume, it fell to Sulla, who was consul and still in Rome, to take command in Asia and conduct this war against Mithridates. But Marius, thinking that the campaign would be straightforward and extremely lucrative, coveted the command, and by making many promises to the tribune Publius Sulpicius, won him over as his ally in this project. He also encouraged the newly enfranchised Italian citizens who were discriminated against in the voting procedure to hope that they would be distributed in all the tribes, which would um, make them equal voters. He said nothing, however, about his own needs, but said that he would deploy the goodwill of the Italians in support of all he did. Sulpicius forthwith proposed a law on the subject, which, if passed, would bring about everything that he and Marius wanted, since the new citizens, meaning the newly enfranchised Italian citizens, far outnumbered the old. But the latter realized this and strenuously opposed the new citizens. They fought each other with clubs and stones, and as the violence mounted, the consuls, concerned because the day for voting on the law was imminent, proclaimed several days' suspension of public business, as was done for the religious festivals, in order to postpone the voting and give some intermission from the disorder. Sulpicius, however, did not wait for the end of the period of suspension, but instructed his supporters to come to the forum with concealed daggers and obey whatever orders he might give, even to attacking the consuls, should that be necessary. When everything was ready, he condemned the suspension of business as illegal and told the consuls, Cornelius Sulla and Quintius Pompeius, to lift it immediately so that he could proceed with the voting on the laws. In the ensuing uproar, those who had previously prepared drew their daggers and threatened to kill the consuls, as they were contesting Sulpicius's demand, until Pompeius slipped away unobserved and Sulla withdrew on the pretext of consultation. Meanwhile, Pompeius's son, who was related to Sulla by marriage and was expressing his views rather freely, was killed by Sulpicius's partisans while he was actually speaking. Sulla reappeared, withdrew the suspension, and hurried to Capua, to the army there, intending to go across to Asia and take charge of the war against Mithridates, for he was as yet unaware of any of the measures being taken against him. Now that the suspension had been lifted and Sulla had left Rome, Sulpicius passed the law and immediately elected Marius to the command against Mithridates in place of Sulla, which was the reason all this had been done. End quote. This is a turning point in Roman history. Because what happens next was completely unexpected, and yet in hindsight, you could see it coming a mile away. Remember, this is the Roman system that has fostered and created a contest of ambition. And this is a king of the mountain game where you play both offense and defense. Sulla thought he was playing offense by running for consul, 
and becoming king of the mountain, and now he gets the benefits of going against Mithridates in the east. What happened to him was that Marius was playing defense and sabotaged his ability to get the top job for the war in the east, even though he thought he already had it. How would Sulla respond? Well, Sulla had something that Marius didn't. 35,000 armed veteran legionaries at his disposal. And what you can tell by how this whole thing worked out is that Marius, who was an extremely intelligent guy, and Sulpicius, who was clever as heck, never in their wildest dreams thought that Sulla would do what he was about to do. It was so against precedent. It was such a violation of protocol. No one had ever done it before. It never entered their minds to think to themselves, gosh, we don't have any troops, and he's got 35,000 guys. What might he do with 35,000 guys? Well, the answer is, we're told, Sulla went to his troops, told them what had just happened. Now, remember, not only is Sulla losing out in this war against Mithridates, but ever since Marius reformed the army a decade ago, the army has their loyalty to the commander now, not the state. It's the commander who assures that the army is going to get what they want. It's the commander who basically makes a deal with the army and then is responsible for following through with their part of the bargain. The army owes Sulla everything. And Sulla goes to them and says something to the effect of, guess what? We've just been stripped of the war against Mithridates. What should we do? He doesn't go so far as to propose anything that they should do. That would really be beyond the pale. So he just throws that out there at them. And the answer they give him is to pick up stones and stone the two riders who came from Rome to give them the news that the command had been stripped to death. And then they exhorted Sulla to take them to Rome where they would restore what had been taken from him. So Sulla takes five of the six legions away from besieging Nola, leaves the last one there, and that's important, actually. And they begin to march under arms towards Rome. And this is such an unprecedented event that all of Sulla's officers, except for one, refuse to go with him. They are not going to be a party to this breach of constitutional etiquette. Sulla, on the other hand, is using constitutional precedent as his defense. As he's marching on Rome several times, Roman diplomats and deputations appear from the city to ask him in an astonished tone, what is he doing? What are you doing with these troops? And why are you coming near the city? And Sulla gives the same answer every time. He says that he's coming to Rome to free the city from her tyrants to free her from the unlawful domination of a faction. In other words, Sulla is about to commit a violent breach of constitutional etiquette on the grounds that he needs to do this to save the Constitution. He is destroying the Constitution in effect in order to save it. As Sulla and his troops approach Rome... There comes a point where they get close enough that they can see the pall of smog that we're told hangs over the city at all times. Remember, Rome is an ancient city that's quite large where everyone heats their homes and cooks their food and conducts their business by fire. So there's going to be wood smoke everywhere. And by the time Sulla and his troops are close enough to see that smog, we're told the last deputation from Rome representing Marius and Sulpicius arrives at Sulla's camp and tells him to please stay there. 
don't come within five miles of the city, they said. And they're almost desperate. They say that the Senate is going to meet, it's going to take up this whole issue, and Sulpicius and Marius will be bound by whatever they say. Just don't do this, because what Sulla was about to do was a violation of almost religious principles. There was an ancient boundary that was supposedly set up by the mythical founder of Rome, Romulus. It was called the Pomerium. And you were not to cross this. It was a violation of everything that the Romans held dear. And at this point, it became obvious that this is what Sulla was doing. Either this or he was bluffing. But Sulla understood that the Senate was being cowed and was under the control of Marius and Sulpicius. And so Sulla told the deputation that they could go back and tell Marius that they would stay five miles away. And as soon as the deputation turned around and headed back to Rome, Sulla and his troops followed. Now, you have to imagine what the conditions must have been like inside the city. Remember, there's no CNN that they can just turn on and find out what's really going on. The city must have been rampant with rumor. First of all, the people there must have been just as incredulous as anyone else. Since something had never happened before, troops coming in the city under arms to actually overthrow the government of the city, that must have been almost impossible to believe. One wonders what the tension must have been like. I've actually seen my home city under occupation, if you want to call it that, by our own uh, military forces, the National Guard during the Los Angeles riots, and I had a special news pass where I could go out in the middle of the night and see armed troops on every street corner and the lights out in blackout conditions, and it is an eerie feeling. One gets the impression that the Romans were starting to feel that same sort of strange feeling about what's it going to be like with armed men all over the place in our city, you know, a day or two from now. We're told that as Sulla approaches... The consul that's been deposed by Sulpicius and Marius, Pompeius, runs out of the city and heads to join Sulla. And then Sulla and his legions begin to take up positions at all the different entrances to Rome, and he begins to push into the city. Now, Marius and Sulpicius have armed everyone that they can think of arming, slaves, gladiators, anything, and they're making their way towards the entrances as well. Meanwhile, the people who live on either side of these roads, who live in multi-story tenements, begin entering the fray themselves. Once they see troops entering the city with a conservative general leading them, these people who probably for the most part in these tenements formed the Populares' main base of support began throwing giant heavy tiles off the roof and stones big enough so that you needed two hands to throw them off the multi-story buildings down on the legionaries. And we're told that the legionaries had to actually retreat toward the wall because the number of missiles being hurled down at them was so intense. Now, Appian says that Sulla simply threatened to burn all the houses down and the people stopped. Plutarch says that he told his archers to use fire darts and lit the buildings all on fire. And as the buildings are burning and people are toppling off the roofs and running and trying to avoid being killed, because, as Plutarch says, Sulla's move doesn't just, you know, attack Sulla's enemies. Fire doesn't distinguish between friend or foe. And everyone in these buildings is becoming a victim. And Sulla is said to have grabbed a torch and literally led his troops by hand. Appian says that this is the first time in Roman history that the political disputes and the ambition between these two men, Sulla and Marius, have brought the state to a point where this is not just a political faction fighting it out with daggers. This is not just assassinations. These are not just lawsuits, which used to happen all the time when someone left office as a way 
you know, to initiate payback. This is the first time in Roman history that two Roman armies with trumpets and military standards and, you know, legionary weapons and everything are fighting it out in the streets. And Sulla manages to get some troops behind the Marians, taking a road that leads all the way around their rear, and we're told that as soon as the Marian forces, the forces fighting for Marius and Sulpicius, realize they've been surrounded, they melt away, screaming all the way for the slaves to join them, and both Appian and Plutarch say the slaves don't. Sulla moves into the city center. He takes some troops and takes them out in public and punishes them for looting some Roman buildings. And this is important because the minute Sulla gains control of the situation, he begins to put his political spin on what he's just done. He's violated one of the most important rules, you know, the Romans had. Now, with hindsight, we may be very blasé about the whole thing. Oh, yes, this happens all the time in Rome. It happened all the time after Sulla. It had never happened before. The Roman writers blame Sulla for breaking this taboo that restricted all these ambitious generals from ever considering this. Once he did it, it became easy to do. Sulla punishes these Romans for looting houses as a way of telling the civilian population that we did not come here to conquer. We came here to reimpose the law and you reimpose the law by showing that these Roman soldiers are not to loot Roman homes. And then he tells the people to go back to their homes, and we're told they spend a very weird, tense evening where Sulla's going from post to post trying to make sure no violence breaks out and nothing evil or terrible happens. And then the next day, he calls this frightened population to an assembly to explain his rationale for what he just did. Appian says, quote, When day came, they called the people to an assembly expressed their regret that the state had for a long time been in the hands of demagogues and said that they had acted as they had out of necessity. End quote. Sulla then proposes some changes. Like most conservatives, he felt that the problem in the Roman system for a long time had been the power of the tribune of the plebs, the tribune of the people. Traditionally, this is a position that has a negative power, the power to veto laws that the people are against. Since 133, when Tiberius Gracchus used the power to actually propose laws to the people, Rome has been in an uproar. Sulla decides to reverse that power and says that no laws can be given to the people till the Senate approves them first. He also puts in some other restrictions that literally take the Roman system back 250 or so years. And Appian says, quote, They, meaning Sulla and his attendants, thought that these measures would ensure that civil discord would not be caused either by a law being put to the people before it had been put to the Senate, or by voting being controlled by the poor and hot-headed instead of by those who possessed property and good sense. End quote. So you can see these are the kind of reforms that a conservative who thought that the public had been out of control for a long time, would impose. Now, the reason that Sulla was imposing this is because he planned to go off to the east and fight this war against Mithridates. And he knew darn well that you've got to make some changes or the minute you're gone, all of Rome's just going to get back to what it was doing, fighting amongst itself, you know, unless the system is fixed. He was coming in to repair the Constitution, which was perceived as being broken. He also falls into that category. So many of the other important people in this story fall into what Susan Wise Bauer says, breaking the law in order to do good. That's a phrase that could be applied to a ton of people in this story. Appian says about the incident, quote, 
In this way, the episodes of civil strife escalated from rivalry and contentiousness to murder, and from murder to full-scale war. And this was the first army composed of Roman citizens to attack their own country as though it were a hostile power. From this point onwards, their conflicts continued to be settled by military means, and there were frequent attacks on Rome, and sieges, and every sort of incident of war. Because nothing remained, neither law, nor political institutions, nor patriotism, that could induce any sense of shame in the men of violence. End quote. So, the breaking of this taboo of marching on Rome under arms by Sulla essentially told everyone that the rules had changed, that there were no prohibitions, there were no taboos, and that if you wanted power, you did this with soldiers. Now, in addition to changing the rules of the Constitution and emasculating the powers of the Tribune, Sulla issues a death sentence. A number of death sentences, actually. He proclaims the ringleaders of the recent unrest in the city to be enemies of the state. And they could be killed by bounty hunters and assassins, and if they just bring the heads in, they'll be paid for them. Number one on the list of people who have been what's known as proscripted is Sulpicius. In addition to him, the great Caius Marius is on the death list too, along with 12 to 15 other important figures. Sulpicius is quickly caught and killed. He's betrayed by his own slave. The slave is then rewarded for his service to the state with his freedom, and then he's thrown by the authorities off the Tarpian rock to his death the traditional punishment the Romans use for slaves who have betrayed their masters. See, the Romans were very severe, very letter-of-the-law kind of people, and just because you'd done a service to the state didn't mean you got out of the traditional punishment for being disloyal to your master. Sulla has the severed head of the dead tribune Sulpicius attached to the speaker's platform, the rostra, in the forum as sort of a grisly reminder of what happens when the demagogues get out of control. Marius, on the other hand, being Marius, even though he's almost 70 and overweight, he manages to get away. And he goes through an odyssey of near misses where he almost dies 10 times, you know, getting away from the assassins that are on his heels every step of the way. Eventually, he finds himself in a little town called Materni, and we're told he's hiding in the back room of what's a shack owned by a woman there, and he's laying on some straw cot trying to get a moment's peace while the assassins are still looking for him, and the people in this town become aware that this amazing figure from Roman history is in their town. And they also know that he's a wanted man, and that if they don't figure out what to do with him, they're going to be implicated, you know, as harboring this fugitive. So Plutarch describes what the ruling elders of Materni are confronted with and what they decide to do about the fact they have Caius Marius in their town. Quote, Meanwhile, the magistrates and counselors of Materni consulted together and determined not to delay any longer, but immediately to kill Marius. And when none of their citizens durst undertake the business, a certain soldier, a Gaulish or Cimbrian horseman, the story is told both ways, Plutarch says, went in with his sword drawn to him. The room itself was not very light, that part of it, especially where he then lay, was dark. From whence Marius's eyes, they say, seemed to the fellow to dart out flames at him, and a loud voice to say out of the dark, Fellow, darest thou kill Caius Marius? The barbarian hereupon immediately fled, and leaving his sword in the place, rushed out of doors, crying only this, I cannot kill Caius Marius. 
at which they were all at first astonished, and presently began to feel pity and remorse and anger at themselves for making so unjust and ungrateful a decree against one who had preserved Italy, and whom it was bad enough not to assist. Let him go, said they, where he pleased to banishment, and find his fate somewhere else. We only entreat pardon of the gods for thrusting Marius, distressed and deserted, out of our city. End quote. That story is told almost exactly the same way by Appian. That this hired assassin, this cold-blooded killer, goes in armed into a room where Marius is laying, this old, fat, has-been with no weapon, and Marius sits up with fire coming out of his eyes. Appian says sparks, Plutarch says flames, and challenges the person how dare they try to kill someone of his stature and the force of this old guy's personality is such that this hired killer is reduced to a quivering mass who drops his weapon runs out and you know obviously to his own embarrassment says I can't do it and then the people in the town realize that they had been contemplating killing one of the greatest men in all Roman history and someone who had saved Italy many times over and they felt ashamed even though they realized that this attitude would get them in trouble with the current ruling government of Rome. Turns out that had they killed him at the time, when they had him close by, they probably would have saved Rome a lot of trouble, because Caius Marius was still promised that seventh consulship, and he wasn't going to rest until he got it. It must have looked like a long shot, though, considering his current circumstances. He continues to try to find a place where he can stop and rest, and we're told he's denied entrance to all these places. Eventually, he finds himself amongst a few of his resettled veterans in North Africa, amongst the ruins of the city of Carthage, which the Romans had destroyed once and for all in 146 BCE. And he almost becomes a sort of a metaphor for Carthage, sitting amongst the ruins and brooding, because like Carthage, he had once been flying high, and like Carthage, he had been brought low by the Roman state. And you get the feeling that this ambitious man must have been wondering if the prophecies that said he was going to be consul seven times were wrong. How was he ever going to live long enough for his fortunes to change enough for that to ever happen? And then he receives word of what's going on in Italy. The word is that Sulla has left for the east, which is remarkable when you think about it because... The Roman historians point out that had Sulla wanted to make himself a monarch or a dictator, he could have done it when he owned Rome, when he had all the troops in there, when he'd taken it over, but he didn't. Marius could have done it himself when he was having consulship after consulship after consulship. He didn't do it either. These Romans from this period didn't want to be kings. They wanted to be, you know, the first among equals in the Roman Republican system. So Sulla leaves, takes those five legions, goes to the east to fight Mithridates, which is all he ever wanted to do looks at his changes in Rome, figuring he's fixed things enough so that it won't just devolve into violence right after he leaves. He presides over elections in 87 BCE, where his hand-picked candidates lose, and the uh, ancient writers suggest that this is because they're mad at him. Even the conservative Senate is mad at him for breaking the historic taboo of marching on Rome. So nobody supports his candidates. A conservative, though, is elected, a guy named Octavius, and one of these popular demagogues is elected, another one of those Huey P. Long types, a guy named Cinna. And we're told that Sulla actually wears that as a badge of honor. 
showing the Romans that, hey, I know you like to elect these popular demagogues, and the fact that I let you is proof that I didn't come here to mold the system the way I wanted it to. If you want to elect one of these guys, it's fine by me. But Sulla was no fool. He made Octavius and Cinna swear to him personally that they would not reverse the laws he had just passed to keep things stable. And then he leaves for the war in the east, and he hardly is left before everything goes crazy again. And it goes crazy for the same reason it's gone crazy several times before. The Italian allies are being cheated over the voting rights. Cinna, the popular demagogue, champions their cause. Octavius, the conservative, you know, champions the other side. And the supporters of both of them start fighting. And in one afternoon in the forum, historian Will Durant says 10,000 of their supporters die in riots, armed riots, over this cause and which side you're going to support. Because of this trouble, Cinna is thrown out of the city by Octavius and his forces. Cinna now knows, as every Roman must, that the way you win these political struggles is with legionaries. Sulla's just proved that. So he goes to that one legion that is still besieging Nola that I told you was important, that Sulla left behind, and he puts on a show of popular demagoguery that must have been incredible to watch. We're told he makes a speech where he rips his clothes off and he falls on the floor and he cries and he drops into the arms of the legionaries and pleads with them. Now, remember, this is a legion whose comrades had just supported the conservative dictators return to the city. And here's his main kind of opponent from the other side screaming that they need to help him. Must have been a heck of a speech because he eventually wins them over. 5,000 men near Rome and the only other army in Rome is on the other side of Italy, still fighting some of these tribes from the social wars that hadn't given up yet. Now Cinna has you know, the majority of soldiers nearby. And then he goes to a bunch of these close-by Italian cities and does the same sort of thing, a passionate speech about how I used to be consul and they threw me out because I was just trying to get you people what you deserved and that worked too. Now, all of a sudden, you're about to have another war one year after you just had Sulla enter the city, and it's going to be Octavius and the conservatives against Cinna and the radicals, and all of a sudden, that's when Marius in North Africa gets the word and an update of what's going on in Italy. And like every great ambitious figure, he realizes that this is his chance. Never a man to miss an opportunity. He grabs a few core supporters, jumps on a ship heading toward Italy, arrives there soon afterwards, and when he steps on the soil of the Italian countryside, you get the feeling that this is eerily reminiscent of what the Emperor Napoleon must have felt like during the return from exile that's been known as the Hundred Days. Because he gets off the ship, and he's in the territory of the Italian allies, people that he was always immensely popular with. He was, after all, not a Roman by birth himself. He was a man who had several times allied with the popular demagogues, pushing the plight of the Italian allies. He gets off board the ship. He begins freeing slaves left and right. He plays this dramatic moment up to the hilt. We're told he doesn't shave his face. He hasn't cut his hair. He's wearing raggedy clothes. And it's a way of saying, look what these people in power now have done to a man who the state owes its whole existence to. He looks like a man who's been wronged. He's landed in Italy amongst a bunch of people who also fall into the category of people who may have been classified as being wronged, all victims of the powers that now run Rome. And he begins to march towards Cinna with a growing group of freed slaves 
and a rabble of Italian allies following him. We're told that he arrives at the camp of Cinna, who is playing up his position as a consul, even though he's been stripped of that role by the conservatives in Rome. He's sitting in the curile chair, and in walks Marius and offers his services. This must have seemed like a huge feather in the cap for Cinna, who also must have known that Marius has done this for several people in Cinna's position before. He makes Marius his proconsul, and Marius immediately turns the whole situation on its head, because before he arrives, it looks like Cinna and Octavius are going to have a knockdown, drag-out fight. When Marius arrives there, he instantly becomes the best general left in Italy. Sulla, after all, is in the east fighting Mithridates, and he knows you don't have to get into this knockdown, drag-out with Octavius and the conservatives. All you have to do is cut the water supply and the food supply to the city, which he quickly does. This starts a huge tide of people leaving the city and coming over to Cinna and Marius's lines. It starts with people who are natural supporters, populare supporters, uh, leaving the city to join the side, which more represents you know, their point of view. Then people who can just see which way the wind's blowing in this whole Octavius versus Cinna conflict start heading out of the city. And we're told Cinna sends heralds to the walls of Rome, screaming out to the slaves on the other side that if they'll leave the city and come over to Cinna, they'll get their freedom. So you have to imagine this long train of people continually leaving this starving and thirsty city. And Octavius and the conservatives realize that they're done for. They can't fight it out now. They've been outfoxed by Marius. Marius, who, by the way, modern historians think is starting to show the signs of dementia or Alzheimer's or something like it. He's not himself, but he's still good enough to know how to defeat a major city without fighting. So the city knows that the only chance they have now is to throw themselves on the mercy of Cinna and Marius, and so they send a deputation out to talk with them. Here's how Plutarch describes it, quote, when affairs were in this posture, the Senate assembled and sent a deputation to Cinna and Marius, desiring them to come into the city peaceably and spare the citizens. Cinna, as consul, received the embassy, sitting in the curile chair, and returned a kind answer to the messengers. Marius stood by him and said nothing, but gave sufficient testimony by the gloominess of his countenance and the sternness of his looks that he would in short time fill the city with blood. End quote. When they entered the city, the slave guard that Marius had put together, called the Bardii, began to kill people, you know, anyone associated with Sulla or the conservatives. In fact, they began to kill people who came up to Marius, and if they saluted Marius and hailed him, and Marius didn't salute back, they would just kill the person at Marius's feet. A nod from Marius's head was enough to get people killed. Octavius, who is the consul, is told by his supporters to flee and get out while he can. He won't do it. He dresses in his official robes. He takes the official axes and rods and all the signs of his eye office and places those around him as he sits in the official chair, and he waits. And then they see a rider approaching, the supporters of Cinna, who ride up and cut off Octavius's head, the consul not even standing to receive his death. And Octavius's head becomes the first of the consuls to be placed on the rostra. It will not be the last. Will Durant writes, quote, The carnage continued for five days and nights, the rebel terror for a year. A revolutionary tribunal subpoenaed patricians, 
condemning them if they had opposed Marius and seizing their property. A nod from Marius sufficed to send any man to death, usually by execution then and there. All of Sulla's friends were slain, his property was confiscated, he was deposed from his command and was declared a public enemy. The dead were refused burial and were left in the streets to be devoured by birds and dogs. The freed slaves plundered, raped, and killed indiscriminately until Cinna gathered 4,000 of them together, surrounded them with Gallic soldiery, and had them butchered to death. End quote. Cinna and Marius both decided this was a good time to run for consul since they were in charge of everything, and Cinna was elected consul again, and Marius was elected consul for the seventh time. The much-promised... Seventh Consulship. This amid the riots and the death and destruction along the lines of something you would have seen in the French Revolution, Durant says the noblemen and supporters of Sulla were having their severed heads placed on pikes that were being paraded around the city. There are many stories told of the noblemen and the supporters of Sulla and the conservatives and their attempts to get their lives spared. They would always send an intermediary to Marius to say, would you please spare so-and-so's life? There's a famous story where one of the intermediaries that goes to Marius is asking for him to spare the life of the man who helped him defeat the Cimbri and the Teutons, a guy named Catalus Lutetius. And they say, please spare Catalus. And they give him all the reasons for doing so. And um, Marius just says three words. He must die. After hearing that, Catalus lights a giant fire in his house and smothers himself to death. People are slitting their wrists. People are having their slaves kill them. The relatives of several important figures in the next generation of this story meet their end. A guy named Crassus with his son are running away from the Marian assassins. And as the Marian assassins are approaching from behind, this guy named Crassus will kill his own son. And before he can kill himself, the assassins reach him and do it for him. Members of Julius Caesar's family are murdered even though the future Caesar himself will have more in common with the party of Marius than the party of Sulla. Mark Antony's grandfather is also killed. There are a lot of people who will have scores to settle because of this tyranny of the populares that takes place when Cinna and Marius retake Rome. Neither Marius nor Cinna will get to enjoy their consulship very much, because before they're even elected, they understand that they have a major danger still awaiting them. They may be in possession of Rome, they may be settling lots of scores, but the lion is still out there. The man who has been called half-lion and half-fox, and the fox is the half you need to worry the most about, it was said, is wrapping up his war with Mithridates with an easy peace treaty to simply get it over with. Sulla's heard about what's happened in Rome, and he's coming back. This is a thought which sends Marius into a tailspin. This man who feared nothing throughout his life, who's enjoying his seventh consulship now, all of a sudden turns to jelly. Whatever is plaguing him, dementia or Alzheimer's, is exacerbated by this fear. And for once we have an actual source that was there, who talks about seeing Marius right at this time. His name is Poseidonus, and he was a philosopher from the era, and he describes what he observed. Quote, 
So Marius was elected consul for the seventh time, and now, although worn out by his sufferings, as well as being somewhat deranged and verging on senility, he could not control his thoughts, as they turned in terror to the awful prospect of yet another war, and further struggles and dangers, which loomed the more because of his great knowledge of such things, and unending toil. For he realized that it was not a question of fighting against Octavius and Marula, who had opposed him at the head of an emergency levy drawn from the urban rabble, but the same Sulla who was in the field against him, who had already once driven him into exile, and who now had an army which had driven Mithridates back into his kingdom. Oppressed by such thoughts, and constantly pondering his long wanderings, and his narrow escapes, and the dangers he'd undergone as he was driven over land and sea, Marius suffered terrible crises, and nocturnal hallucinations, and wild dreams, and kept on thinking that he heard someone saying, "'Rest is impossible for one who fears the return of the lion to his intended prey.' So fearing most of all the prospect of lying awake, he turned to drink and to unseasonable and unsuitable debauchery, as if he were attempting to ensure sleep free of nightmares. And finally, when a messenger came from overseas, new fears came upon him, partly from apprehension for the future, and partly, as it were, because he was quite unable to bear the present. A sudden crisis came upon him, and he felt ill, as Poseidon, as the philosopher, records, remarking that he himself came before him and spoke of the business on which Rhodes had sent him when Marius was already sick and in fact about to die. End quote. Plutarch simply records the line, The lion's lair is dangerous, though the lion be not there. The lion was on his way back. And Marius knew it. And it killed him. He'd served that much-predicted, much-vaunted, much-sought-after Seventh Consulship for a mere 17 days. In the next episode of Death Throes of the Republic, while Marius and Sulla strive for the mastery of the Roman Republic, the next generation of Roman leaders is watching and learning. And when they come of age, they will take the lessons and the new reality that Rome's struggle for power has absorbed from the civil wars and apply it for their own deadly purposes. Crassus, Pompey, and the young and great Julius Caesar will take Rome's republic down for their own ambitious reasons. And Sulla's not done yet, either. All this and more in Death Rows of the Republic, Part 4. Want to help the podcasts? Just buy your Amazon.com products through the Amazon search window on dancarlin.com, and Dan and Ben will get a percentage of what you spend, and it won't cost you a penny more. Thanks to everyone for posting comments about the show on iTunes. They help get the program noticed.